It's so good to have a live audience for one of these classes that we're also live streaming. I wish there was more time for crowd interaction, but you're going to quickly see that the information I'm sharing, there's a lot of it. Uh, this is going to be a dense evening, and I hope on the other side you do not think that I am dense, but that you think that uh, we are uncovering and making clear a lot of the wisdom that is, to me, for the most part, very, very plain in the scriptures, but uh, at times very confused in the practice and setting and cultural history of the church. So we're starting right now. I don't know how long this is going to go. So this could be a bit of a marathon. If you have to leave at any point, I will not take offense. I understand this is midweek. It is toasty in here. Uh, you may have to go to bed because you got work in the morning. Whatever the case, uh, this is recorded. This is something that you can reference in the future, and that's the purpose and why we're recording it, because we really believe that this is going to be culturally significant for us, uh, a night that's going to shape uh, who we are as a community even as I think for those of you that have been with us for a while, it's going to feel very natural and consistent with who we've been all the way up to this point. Uh, also realize that I'm not going to be covering everything. There is so much to talk about, and so there's a good chance that there are going to be some follow-up conversations about more specific aspects of our culture and the spirit and the practice of the gifts. What does that practically look like? Some of that I'm not going to have the time to get into, so expect that there are going to be other times that we will get together, have discussions, and hopefully in a more conversational format. But I'm, again, so glad that you're here and that uh, this is evidence that this is an important conversation for you and for our church as a whole. Now, why are we having this conversation? What prompted this? Well, Branches, I believe, is a really beautiful, special community that sits at the intersection of a lot of different traditions of the church. I mean, you've got folks with a Catholic background who grew up in the Catholic church. You've got folks who are of a more reformed tradition. You have folks who've grown up sort of in a non-denominational evangelistic, uh, evangelical church. You've got uh, folks who are from more charismatic backgrounds or cessationist backgrounds. I'm going to define all these terms later. But when we were at Rock Harbor, it was no different. And I love the diversity of our community. And I'm not, because we're hosting this, trying to stifle that diversity. I'm not trying to say that this is the only way that you can think. This is the only emphasis that you can give when it comes to the spiritual gifts. But we are sort of bound as a community to present to you what our culture is, what our interpretation is, what is the norm for us as a community. Because in relationships, and certainly the church is relationships, in relationships, communication is so key. In the absence of communication, there's going to be misinterpretation. People are going to fill in their own meanings about what we think related to the work of the Spirit and the spiritual gifts. And they may make assumptions that are based not on reality and who we are as a community, but based on their traditions and their past experience. So those assumptions are going to ultimately be inaccurate or incomplete. So that's the purpose of this communication here. I did lead us through an extended series on the Holy Spirit. It was initially going to be six weeks. I extended it to seven weeks. It's entitled Spirituality. You can go online. You can see a comprehensive look at our theology of the Holy Spirit. But, you know, Sundays and that context even are not necessarily the context 
to get into some of the granular and specific and detailed items that I'm going to be teaching on in this setting. So how are we going to be moving through this content? First of all, I'm going to define spiritual gifts. We're going to talk about their purpose. I'm going to address some cultural errors I've seen regarding uh, people's perceptions of the spirit and people's perceptions and practice regarding the spiritual gifts. And then I'm going to give some definition around some of the more confusing or obscured gifts, at least in my thinking. So let's start out by defining spiritual gifts. Let's just jump right into it. The word for spiritual gifts derived from the Greek is the word charisma, from which we get the term charismatics. The word simply means gifts of grace. Now, the fact that the gifts of the Spirit are called gifts is one extraordinary statement, I believe, about how we should view these practices, these abilities. You know, they're not referred to in the scriptures as Christian powers. If they were referred to as like something like Christian powers, we'd begin to like focus on those abilities in and of themselves, and we'd probably begin to be in awe of the people that are performing those powers, right? When we think of the spiritual gifts as gifts of grace, gifts of God, we begin to understand that, hey, wait a minute, everything has its origin in God who is at work through individuals, and it is God who gets the glory. He's the object of our awe. A quick survey on the Spirit of God will be helpful, okay, as we begin to get more focused on the spiritual gifts themselves. Let me just establish a couple of key ideas around the Spirit of God as we trace this theme through the Scriptures. Number one, I want to assert that the Spirit is one person of the Trinity, referenced all throughout the Scriptures. From the beginning, the Spirit is there present in creation, hovering over the waters, and then right into the Gospels in the New Testament. Uh, Jesus declares, God is spirit, and his worshipers will worship him in spirit and in truth. The spirit didn't just come upon people in the New Testament. The spirit uniquely came upon people in the Old Testament for specific purposes. The first time you hear about the spirit coming upon somebody to give them an ability or a gift is actually uh, Bezalel as a craftsman who was working on the tabernacle, the initial like traveling house of God. So that doesn't fit into any of the lists of spiritual gifts that we have in the New Testament that we're going to reference a little bit later on. But the Spirit of God, it says, came upon him as a craftsman. I just, I just love it. That's the first act that we see in the Old Testament of God's Spirit coming upon someone and giving them abilities. But also, you see, throughout the book of Judges, you've got Othniel, you've got Samson, Gideon, these different judges that are raised up, and it says the Spirit of God came upon them for the purpose of leadership, gave them certain abilities, like Samson having that superhuman strength. It also says in the Old Testament, the Spirit of God came upon Samuel and Saul and David. So it's not, again, something exclusively that we see in the New Testament. But we see that the Spirit was promised in the Old Testament more broadly to all Christians. So it was isolated instances of individuals with special abilities in the Old Testament, leaders that God was raising up. But there was this forward-looking prophecy, prophecies from the Old Testament that spoke about a time when God's Spirit would be poured out on all people. You know, your sons and daughters are going to prophesy. The old men are going to dream dreams. That's Joel chapter 2. 
Now, Jesus in the New Testament spoke of the promise of the spirit that would be received by his followers following his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension to heaven. He says, I will ask the father in John chapter 14, and he will send another advocate like me to be with you forever. So he spoke of that promise as coming to fruition of being fulfilled after his ascension. Jesus characterized the Spirit of God as our helper, another one, like I said, like himself, who would remind us of his teaching, guide us dynamically through life circumstances, and empower us for the mission he put upon us. That's in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. I want you to wait here in Jerusalem for the power that's going to come from on high, and then you're going to have this power to go be my witnesses in the world. The fulfillment of the Old Testament promises and of Jesus' claims came to pass on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 when tongues of fire descended on believers and they spoke in foreign languages proclaiming the praises of God to all the foreigners gathered in Jerusalem. And throughout the book of Acts, if you survey the book of Acts, you see that all believers... Jew and Gentile alike, who became followers of Jesus, received the Spirit before, during, or immediately following their reception of the gospel in faith alongside their baptism and their turning in repentance toward God. Though not necessarily in that order or in that particular formula. It's a little amazing if you do a survey through the book of Acts of when people received the Spirit of God. Peter says in Acts chapter 2, at the end of his first sermon there, Repent, be baptized for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the Spirit. But then you find in Acts chapter 8, there are some Samaritans who were baptized, but they didn't receive the Holy Spirit until hands were laid on them by Peter and John. And then you got in Acts chapter 10, where we didn't even wait for baptism. Peter's preaching at Cornelius' house, and these are Gentiles, they're not Jews. And while Peter's in the middle of preaching, the Holy Spirit comes upon the Gentiles, and then they were baptized. And then you've got this group in Acts chapter 19, a group that did not receive the Spirit because they had only John's baptism. They were baptized in the name of Jesus, and Paul laid hands on them to receive the Spirit of God. So throughout the book of Acts, it's a little bit confusing. It confounds us a bit. It's hard to just place formulas on how God works. But we are left with the impression that no matter what the order is, here's the ingredients. (laughs) Faith in Jesus, repentance, baptism, and the reception of the Holy Spirit. That was something that happened for all believers, though not necessarily in any particular order. Now that we've done a survey of the Holy Spirit, let me establish some principles of the Spirit through the Scriptures. The New Testament, as I said, as we see in the survey of the book of Acts, it operates in the understanding and assumption that all faith-filled believers are also Spirit-filled believers, whether they are aware of it or not. Paul says there in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 4, there is one faith and one Spirit. So you've placed your faith in Jesus, you're following the one Lord, and you must have received the one Spirit. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, he's trying to tell the church, you may not be aware all the time, you may have these divisions among you, you may behave in ways that are not consistent with your faith, but you are a temple of the Holy Spirit, and God dwells in your midst. So we're not always aware 
But the testimony of the scriptures is that every faith-filled believer, not every perfect believer, but every faith-filled believer is also a spirit-filled believer. And just so you know, you don't have to feverishly take notes right now. I am more than happy to send all these slides to you on the other side of this evening, because why would I keep this from you? I would love for you to look at it and study it later. I'll send out, uh, you know, actually reach out to me. I would love a flood of 50 emails. Let's actually get a list somewhere. You can just write your name and your email address, and I'll make sure it gets sent to you. Number two, we're talking about principles of the Spirit. Although all faith-filled Christians are Spirit-filled Christians, we know that believers can be more or less filled with the Spirit of God, meaning they are more or less guided and grounded in God. Okay? There are different expressions of the spirit in the scriptures either being grieved because of someone's actions. You know, that, that's at times they don't grieve the Holy Spirit. You know, Paul actually calls for us to go on being filled with the Holy Spirit instead of getting drunk on wine. So another principle of the spirit is we're to pursue being increasingly filled with the spirit of God through increasing awareness, relationship, and dependence on God's presence in our lives. Another principle, the chief goal of the Holy Spirit that we see in the scriptures is to bring us into fellowship and alignment with our Father and with his Son, Jesus, and to empower us to witness to the world so that others may be joined in union to us and ultimately to God. Another principle, there is no gospel-affirming reality, no Jesus-guided value or vision in us that is not in some way received, perceived, or conceived without the influence of the Holy Spirit in us. Paul says there in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, we have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we may understand what God has freely given us. And if you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2, there is nothing that we can understand that is of God that is not in some way enabled by the Holy Spirit at work in us to understand those things. And the final principle I want us to understand is that all Christians have received gifts and graces by the Holy Spirit. Romans chapter 12, verse 6, we have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. Okay, look at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 7, but to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. So... We can be more or less filled with the Spirit. The call is for us to be increasingly filled with the Spirit, but we all have the Spirit of God within us if we've placed our faith in Jesus. The chief goal of the Spirit is to promote maturity from believer to believer, but also to promote God's witness in the world. There is no way you could be a Christian and really understand the truths of Jesus without the Holy Spirit forming you in your heart and in your mind. And you whether you realize it or not, whether you can acknowledge it or not, have received gifts of grace, abilities by God's spirit that are for the purposes of building up your brothers and sisters and, of course, God's witness in the world. So this night is specifically about the spiritual gifts. I had to give you a survey of the Holy Spirit through the scriptures really quickly. I had to establish some principles of the Holy Spirit through the scriptures because those are going to be foundational building blocks for us in our understanding of everything else that we're going to talk about related to the spiritual gifts. You know, one component of the total conversation around the Holy Spirit is this conversation around the spiritual gifts. So I'll constantly be putting this discussion in the context 
of everything else that I've established, but let's begin to focus on the gifts themselves. Again, let me remind you, and I want to make this clear, all believers, all faithful believers have received the Spirit. That's the assumption of the Scriptures. All believers are more or less filled with the Spirit, and all have received gifts. So what are they? Paul has two lists, two really clear lists. There's also another shorter list, but it's in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We get a list. Romans chapter 12, so that makes it easy to remember, 12 and 12. Those are the more extensive lists, and then we have... Some cited in Ephesians chapter 4. In them, he lists the gifts of messages of wisdom, messages of knowledge, the gift of faith, gifts of healing, miraculous powers, prophecy is listed in all the lists, the gift of distinguishing spirits, discerning spirits, the gift of different kinds of tongues, the interpretation of tongues, serving, Teaching is in all the lists. Giving, leadership, mercy, apostleship, guidance or administration, helping, evangelism, and the gift of being a pastor, teacher. It's notable to me that Jesus did not mention in all of his teaching a complete list of spiritual gifts. And it's also interesting to me that Paul's lists are not identical, not at all. So if you're thinking that the New Testament wasn't fully formed in the way that we have it today, that these churches are just receiving these individual letters, does that mean that the Corinthian church only had a certain set of gifts and were missing out on the gifts of the Roman church and the Roman church was missing out on the gifts of the Corinthian church? Or is something else at play here? That maybe neither list is all-inclusive, that Paul is listing all these graces, all these abilities of the different parts of the body, all the different believers in the congregations, but he's not trying to list, like scientifically, here's every possible way the Spirit of God can work through someone. I mean, you don't see craftsmanship, and that was the first ability that someone was given in the Old Testament by the Holy Spirit. So I want us to understand that I don't believe these lists are all-inclusive, that there's all kinds of other things that may happen through you uniquely. There's all kinds of things that you may bring to the body of Christ that aren't necessarily named in these lists that are still abilities and gifts and graces that God has given you and is enabling you with for the benefit of the body and for his witness in the world. It's additionally worth noting that while this is an important discussion because obviously it's in the Bible a few times, it's not emphasized to the degree that certain traditions in Christianity emphasize it. Like you would think, if this is something that's talked about endlessly all the time in certain traditions of Christianity, that it would be talked about endlessly all the time by Jesus and all the New Testament writers. Like this would be the number one thing we're always talking about. Now it's here, it's important, it's valid, but I think maybe there's something about us as Americans that inclines us to be really focused on the spiritual gifts. I don't know about you guys, but have you ever realized that in America, we're very performance-oriented? We're very oriented toward what we can do and what we can accomplish, what validates us and gives us meaning, you know, is what we do with our hands, what we can perform for other people. So is it any surprise then that we as American Christians can be really inclined toward the performance-oriented nature of spiritual gifts. I want to know what my abilities are and let's all be about practicing these abilities. I, I don't think there's just a chance 
that that is why we may give an overemphasis to it. So I want to just put that in check, that I think when something's really, really, really important and needs to get across to us through the scriptures, God repeats himself over and over and over again. And the amount of times he says it is where we should be looking and giving the most of our attention. And yet, even having said that, the gifts are mentioned, and they're mentioned for a purpose, and a particular purpose in that. Understand that the, the letter to the Romans was a letter to the Romans, and the letter to the Corinthian church was a letter to the Corinthian church. So this discussion around the gifts is coming out of a conversation, uh, a need that, that Paul is addressing. He's talking about the diversity of the church coming together in the letter to the Romans. In the Corinthian church, he's actually correcting an overemphasis that the congregation had on the practice of certain spiritual gifts in a way that was very disordered. And so he's trying to speak to the whole context of what spiritual gifts are to be about, what their purpose is. So it's coming out of that context that we get these discussions. These are just not the things that, okay, we always need to talk about, we always need to focus on. No, he was addressing particular things. And if we zoom out even more, like I said, the purpose is really clear when we cross-reference both passages and Ephesians chapter four. The general purpose of the gifts is this, to build up one another in maturity that is Christian edification, and additionally, as I've said, to witness to unbelievers. Now consider these two purposes that we derive from 1 Corinthians, Romans chapter 12, and Ephesians chapter 4. The first purpose, that the purpose of the gifts is to build one another up in maturity. It's really fascinating to me that God would deliberately give us different gifts for the building up of one another so that we would require one another to advance in maturity in Christ. He specifically did not give us all the same gifts, and he specifically did not give us all the gifts because we would then not require each other. We would then be complete in and of ourselves on our journey and our road and our personal relationship with Jesus. That's a very American thing. Paul never conceived of just this purely personal relationship with Jesus. He's like, you cannot mature, you cannot grow unless you're embedded in the body of Christ and you are exercising your gifts to help the growth and maturity of others and they are exercising their gifts to help your growth and maturity. So it's a beautiful thing that God has done. He's made us, in a sense, spiritually incomplete so that we're forced to rely on each other in relationship. It's a beautiful thing, I think. Uh, but furthermore, that first purpose, this idea that God matures us through our dependency on one another and the gifts that are exercised from one person to another, further demonstrates that God may primarily, at times, use other people to speak to us, to encourage us and shape us. So some people will say, I'm not hearing from God. Well, one of the primary ways that you're going to hear from God, that you're going to connect with God, is through God's work that he's doing through someone else to you. That's the way God built it. That's the way he apportioned the pieces of his body. Think about this in Ephesians chapter 4. It's cited there. Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, 
attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. That's the purpose of all these different gifts being given. We're being built up, reaching unity in the faith, and in the knowledge of the Son of God, and we're becoming mature. We're attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. We can't get to that end result unless we're embedded in a body of believers who are exercising their gifts that God has given toward us. Now look at this in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Look at the necessity of the other parts of the body. If the whole body were an eye, if it were just you and your personality and your abilities and your gifts, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? These are the best arguments for anyone who says, I don't need to be involved in church. I don't need to be in relationships with other believers. I got my faith, my personal faith with Jesus. Where's the body then? Where's the body? If you're just the one part walking around, you know, the full body of Christ, just you, that is not what the church, the assembly of God's people is called to be. So that first purpose that we're given the gifts for the building up of one another in maturity, it's really interesting to consider. The second purpose of the gifts being given to us is also interesting to consider because God has given us these gifts to empower us for his witness in the world. So that means it's God's activity on which we depend when we are sharing the gospel with others. He's the one to give us words when we're called to testify before others. That's the promise of the scriptures. You don't have to worry about what you're going to say. And I know we're so worried about what we're going to say when we're about to talk about God with other people sometimes. He says, no, I'm going to empower you with my spirit to be my witness. I'm going to give you the words to testify. You're just going to have to open your mouth. So he's the one on which we depend for all the activity when it comes to evangelism. He's the one who brings about repentance. He's the one who produces the growth. Paul says, as he was going about his ministry, I planted the seed. Apollos, another ministry worker, came along and watered the seed, but it's God who made the work grow. It's God who took that seed and planted it in that good soil of your heart and made it return, a, a, a production, a harvest through you. Guys, this is beautiful. This frees us by taking the emphasis off our own abilities, our own strength, to what God can accomplish by his own strength in reaching people for his kingdom. So I love considering the place of the spiritual gifts, the purpose of the spiritual gifts, and really looking at these scriptures because it's such a beautiful picture of the unity that should be produced across the body of Christ as we're all using these abilities, these gifts of grace God has given us to minister to one another, and as we rely on the power that God gives us to both speak to who Jesus is and also make that effective in people's hearts. It's just our call to be obedient and to be available. So having done this more general survey, right, on the Holy Spirit and principles of the Spirit and a general survey of the gifts and the purpose of the gifts, let's talk about some broad cultural misconceptions regarding the Spirit and spiritual gifts. Let's start with this first misconception that not all Christians are charismatics. Some people would think that. Some people would think there are Christians who are charismatic and there are Christians who aren't charismatic. If we think about the principles of the spirit that we've established through the scriptures, the truth is all of Christianity 
is charismatic. Whether or not it acknowledges that it's charismatic, all of Christianity is charismatic. Cessationists, those are individuals who believe that what they would call the sign gifts, that is some of the more overtly supernatural gifts like healing, like tongues, they would say those ceased to be useful and part of God's purposes and plan after the first century, after the Bible was established. I am not a cessationist, but there are those who believe that because of a few passages that I think are a bit obscure. I'll just say that. Uh, They establish that view that only certain gifts of the Spirit are still active, but even cessationists are charismatic because they still have this ability to have this faith in Jesus. They still have this ability to understand the teachings of Jesus. They still believe that the Spirit is active in certain ways, even as they look at those abilities of the Spirit at the expense of other abilities of the Spirit and gifts of the Spirit. They're still charismatic, even if they don't want to be, because they're filled with the Spirit of God. And traditional charismatics. I know this is going to be a big wow here. I believe you're charismatic. Yeah, but I believe that traditional charismatics too can have an overemphasis on certain spiritual gifts and works of the Spirit, just like cessationists. It's funny how sometimes opposite views actually have a lot more in common than they realize. Uh, You know, extremists anywhere oftentimes have a lot in common, even if they have extremely different views. You know, traditional, very hyper charismatics, they sometimes have an overemphasis on certain works of the Spirit at the expense of other works of the Spirit, and yet they're still filled with the Spirit. They're still charismatic. The point is, guys, there is one Spirit filling all believers who are part of this one faith, who've been baptized with this one baptism. The Spirit, one of the primary roles of the Spirit is to be our means of our unity with one another, the means of our oneness with one another. That's one of the primary roles of the Spirit of God at work. And yet, you know, the irony is that talking about the Holy Spirit has become such a divisive thing among believers. It's preposterous. We need more grace in the conversation. And hopefully there's grace for me in this conversation tonight because the Spirit is meant to be this example of our unity, the binding presence that keeps us together without any hierarchy. Paul says here in Ephesians chapter four, make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. You have so many differences. You have so many different personalities. You've got so many beefs with each other, but you're filled with the same spirit of God. God has decided to inhabit this believer and inhabit this believer So if God has union with both of these people, how can you be in disunity with each other? That's what he's saying. So do everything you possibly can to get along. (laughs) Maintain the unity of the spirit through this bond. We're like super glued together, even if we don't want to be. This bond of peace. Guys, the reception of the spirit by the Gentiles was the sign that God had made them co-equal citizens in heaven and in Christ. That's in Acts chapter 11. Do you know there was a debate? In the book of Acts, after the ministry of Jesus, about whether or not Gentiles, that is 99.9% of us in this room who are not Jewish in our heritage, there was a debate. The Christians were talking about whether or not we could be Christians. And Paul was citing that experience in Cornelius' house, that he was preaching the gospel, and in the middle of it, 
God didn't wait for baptism. God didn't wait for, you know, a certain part of the service. He just said, I'm saving Gentiles, and they receive the Holy Spirit. And then Paul, or Peter, actually claims that in his argument, that yes, the Gentiles are part of the faith. He says this in Acts chapter 11, verse 17, if God gave them the same gift he gave us who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could stand in God's way? So one of the primary purposes of the Holy Spirit, the roles of the Holy Spirit is to bring unity and equality as he's binding us together and he's building one another up. So hierarchy in value and spirituality through words and methods and views on the gifts is antithetical to the spirit. So when someone says, I'm charismatic and you're not charismatic and I'm filled with the Holy Spirit and you're not filled with the Holy Spirit or I'm, I'm, I've got this higher enlightenment in the Holy Spirit than you have in the Holy Spirit. I mean, there's a difference in like maturity and growth in the Lord and being more submitted and dependent on the Lord. And then there's this other version of charismatic culture that's like, I've obtained something that's very special that you don't have broad access to in the gospel that only I can bestow on you through the secret knowledge that I've received through my tradition. That sort of hierarchy that claims the Holy Spirit as its core is working against the very thing that the Spirit of God stands for, which is to create equality and unity among God's people. Such assumptions and language is evidence to me of spiritual immaturity at its most innocent and the heresy of Gnosticism at its worst. One of the first heresies of the early church is that there was a group going around going, okay, I've received the Spirit of God and now I have this special download that no one else has, but if you come with me, I can share you all my mystical teachings that go beyond the scriptures you know, that was heresy. So when someone says, you've got to pray this certain way that isn't necessarily revealed in the scriptures, and you've got to obtain this higher enlightenment in the Holy Spirit that you don't already have, that isn't already available to you, that is either spiritual immaturity at its most innocent, or at worst, the heresy of Gnosticism, this special knowledge. All of Christianity is charismatic. Second misconception, not all the gifts are as spiritual or supernatural as the others. That's a misconception. Because the truth is, all the gifts, every gift that I listed, from 1 Corinthians 12, Romans chapter 12, Ephesians 4, all the gifts, because they are products of the Holy Spirit and believers, are equally spiritual and supernatural. Now, many cultures do not acknowledge this because the more seemingly mundane gifts don't get as much attention or, quite frankly, value. I've never heard anybody walk in on someone crafting budgets on Excel and say, wow, the Spirit of God is so palpable in this room. Can you just feel the atmosphere? The atmosphere is thick with the presence of God as this person is crunching numbers on their Excel spreadsheet. Well, if they don't process those donations and pay invoices and set up live streams and make slides, then I'm not sharing with you right now. Okay, it is a beautiful thing that God has given both natural abilities that have been supercharged by the spirit and also these abilities that were foreign to them that are gifts of the spirit to be able to accomplish those things for our one united purpose to build others up and expand the gospel. The spirit acknowledged or not is present in all of it. In fact, the spirit empowered teaching of Paul Okay, the spirit-inspired words of the scriptures tell us that if we're truly spiritual, 
We won't give special attention to the more presentable parts of our fellowship, to those more presentable gifts, but to those that are less presentable. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 22. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable, and the parts that we think are less honorable we treat with special honor. That's what it means to be the body of Christ. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty, while our presentable parts need no special treatment. That's the words of God. That's the word of God. That's spirit-inspired words. So if we are filled with the Holy Spirit and we're listening and we're formed with the value system of the Holy Spirit, we are not going to be giving an overemphasis on the more presentable parts of the body or the more presentable abilities. We're actually going to be thinking about and considering the gift of helps. We're going to be thinking and considering the gifts of giving and serving and administration and guidance, not just the gift of leadership or prophecy. Third misconception, the degree of someone's spirit filling is evidenced in the gifts they practice. That's a misconception, this idea that you are more filled with the spirit because you are prophesying on a stage. You know, that is, that is not the truth. The degree of someone's spirit filling is evidenced in their union with Christ, okay? Not in the gifts that they exercise. When Paul is calling for elders to be selected for the church, you would think he would want those who are presumably the most spiritual, the most filled with the Holy Spirit, because they are going to be in charge of leading and guiding these fledgling communities, right? So what are the requirements in 1 Timothy chapter 3? All these amazing, over-the-top spiritual abilities. Let's look. 1 Timothy chapter 3. Here is a trustworthy saying. Whoever aspires to be an overseer, an elder, desires a noble task. Now, the overseer is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him, and he must do so in a manner worthy of full respect. For if anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? I'm thinking about managing my five kids right now. It's challenging. I feel a little convicted. He must not be a recent convert, or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. So this is the criteria for someone to take on the highest level of spiritual leadership, for someone who presumably is going to be spirit-filled. This is the evidence of God at work in the life of these individuals, and it doesn't involve any particular practice or gift, save for the ability to teach, to promote sound doctrine, which would, practically speaking, be a very important gift for them to be able to exercise. Because when the early church was seeking people who would be responsible for the waiting on tables, right? There's the ministry to the widows and making sure that they have food and they needed a group, deacons, to administrate that. They were looking for individuals, explicitly it says in Acts, that were spirit-filled. For what? For what task? What amazing task was to be given to these individuals who are spirit-filled. If, if, if their spirit-filling is evidenced in their set of responsibilities and what they are doing with their lives, it was evidenced in them waiting on tables, distributing food, 
to widows. So their spirit-filledness wasn't necessarily reflected in the task at hand. And the task at hand did not determine how filled with the spirit they were. Their spiritual maturity was evidenced in their union with Christ. Fourth misconception. The degree of someone's spirit filling is evidenced in their level of emotiveness. The louder I am, the more excited I am, the more intense I am every single time I talk to you. Man, I need to dial it back a notch right now, right? That's how spirit-filled I am. That's a misconception. In some cultures, they'll just say, man, if you're jazzed, if you're wired, that's how you know you are filled with the spirit of God. Mm. The truth is, being spirit-filled means expressing Christ-formed emotions. There's a place for emotions in being spirit-filled, but it is not based in emotionalism. Being spirit-filled is not about being the most vocal and the most enthusiastic and excitable. You know, people who believe that the times where the spirit of God is most at work are the times that are most frenetic and chaotic. I don't believe they're being formed by the example of what we see in the scriptures. Again, there's no doubt in my mind as the spirit works in us, Christ will form and impact our emotions as much as he changes our thoughts and minds and values. See the fruits of the spirit in Galatians chapter five. Look at the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Those are both qualities and attitudes that have very practical outcomes in the way that somebody lives, but they're also attitudes. They also have to deal with our emotions. Try to have joy without expressing it somehow. So I am not saying that we're to be unemotional. Some of us have longer to go in that, like the full expression of what it means for Christ to form us in those Christ-centered emotions. I'm 50% Norwegian. I come from a line of Norwegians that are 100% Norwegian. And those guys in Minnesota, I mean, they're just as, just, and they're like, I'm so happy right now. You know, that, that's like how my dad was. He's gone through a massive process of transformation in the Lord over his lifetime. And we're all coming from different places in the spectrum. God's taking some of us that are super into emotionalism and he's like grounding us. And he's taking others of us that are completely closed off and cold hearted. He's saying, I got to break through because Christ felt things. He felt compassion. He, he wept, you know, he, he was driven by feelings throughout his ministry. Okay. We shouldn't be scared of it. But again, that's not drifting into emotionalism. It doesn't have to do with the amount of energy that's transferred into those emotions. Many of the actual fruits of the Spirit stand in opposition to emotionalism, which produces an unguided hype and frenzy. We're talking about self-control here, gentleness, forbearance, peace. Those actually keep in check losing your mind and being frantic and out of control. Paul dealt with this in the Corinthian church. It's easy to see. Read the scriptures. Go back. After I've done all this and you question certain things, go back and just read the scriptures, these sections that I'm telling you to. People read the passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, eagerly desire the spiritual gifts. I've heard that in this blank check. Like, let's get everybody together. We're going to practice the gifts right now. And it says in the scriptures, eagerly desire the spiritual gifts. So we're all going to desire the gifts. Let's all ask for the gifts and let's kick this place into a frenzy, Right? But if you actually read 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 31, they always leave out this word, 
It's eagerly desire the greater spiritual gifts. I've never heard anyone say that that's quoting this verse. I've always sort of said, eagerly desire the spiritual gifts in general. But Paul is addressing something very specific going on in the Corinthian church. And he's telling them, I want you to eagerly desire the greater spiritual gifts. And I know what you're thinking right now, if you're following with me. I thought all gifts were created equal. No. I said our level of spirit filling is not determined by the gifts we practice and are given. And that all believers are equal. But not all gifts of the Spirit are to be practiced as co-equal in the gathering of God's people. Some are of greater use when the people of God are together. In Corinth, the situation was such that the church was coming unhinged. They were defining their spirituality through this practice of speaking in heavenly languages, in ecstatic languages, in the practice of tongues. And we're talking, it must have been some rough oceans in those gatherings, lots of froth, and they think nothing's wrong. They're having a grand old time. Paul says to them, go back and read it, 1 Corinthians chapter 14. You guys are having a great time, and I get it. But when people come in, they cannot understand you. They think you're nuts, and your witness is being hampered. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 23, if the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in tongues and inquirers or unbelievers come in, will they not say that you are out of your mind? Which is not a work of the Spirit. Remember, one of the purposes, the primary purposes of the Holy Spirit is to enable our witness. So the Holy Spirit would not be working against himself in his primary goal to make us look like we're crazy to people coming in from the outside. And I actually think that this is a little bit of a defense here of the seeker-sensitive church, just a little bit. I'm not saying we got to water everything down here, but they're saying, man, there might be some people that are interested in the faith. They're interested in Christianity. They're going to show up at your gathering, and if you guys are just going, bouncing off the walls, and they walk in, and they don't understand anything, they're going to think you're crazy, and you're not building each other up in maturity. The other purpose of the Spirit of God, 1 Corinthians 14, verses 9 and 12 So it is with you, unless you speak intelligible words with your tongue, how will anyone know what you're saying? You will just be speaking into the air. So it is with you, since you are eager for gifts of the Spirit, try to excel in those that build up the church. So again, you're all having these individual amazing experiences, but because people don't understand each other and there's not order in the service, The body is not building itself up into maturity. So this cannot be the primary thing the Spirit of God is doing among you because that's working against the very purpose of the Spirit of God. So he couldn't be more clear. Paul, and don't think he's a downer about the Spirit of God because, like, he is the expert, right? He's the expert on spirit filling and giftedness from which we derive our understanding of all the gifts. Paul says this, I'm edified, by speaking in tongues. I personally, I do it all the time. You want to know who's the number one fan of tongues, Paul says? It's me. I'm your guy. I do it all the time. But I speak in tongues in private, and we prophesy in the church, or we interpret tongues into prophecy so that all people can understand something edifying, and so that if a non-believer and unbeliever is among you, they'll hear the gospel message, and their hearts are going to be laid bare. The secrets of their hearts and they're going to repent. 
But here's the emphasis, Paul says, I would rather, he couldn't be more clear, I would rather have you speak five intelligible words than 10,000 words in a tongue, 1 Corinthians 14, 19. This is why I don't understand why we can't just go to the scripture and clear up some of the cultural misconceptions that we have about the gathering of God's people and where the spirit is really at work because it isn't like secret code. It isn't difficult to decipher where the emphasis is. He's saying, guys, get together, five words. I'd rather you guys just said five words than 10,000 words of what's going on here. If you're going to continue, and you can, at least pray for interpretation, but can you do it in turn as well? Not speaking over each other because God is a God of order, not chaos. That's 1 Corinthians 14, verse 29. He says, two or three prophets should speak. We'll talk about prophecy later. And the others should weigh carefully what is said. And if a revelation comes to someone who's sitting down, the first speaker should stop. For you can all prophesy in turn so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. The spirits of prophets are subject to the control of prophets. For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, as in all the congregations of the Lord's people. So he's basically saying, you can control yourself. And that'll be the argument of some people is, well, the spirit of God is just at work. I can't control myself. I'm forced to do this in this moment. We're just all in this froth and the ocean's spinning. He says, that's not the case. You guys can take turns, and if somebody goes to speak, somebody else can stop speaking, you should have a little bit of space to weigh out what's being said. And God is a God of order, not disorder. You're not going to have to talk over each other if God is speaking at your gathering. So if you read the passage in its entirety, he's guiding them away from spiritual self-gratification in the group to the mutual edification, which involves clear communication and orderly movement. It's not unemotional but it's not unguided emotionalism. Fifth misconception. All believers will receive the same gifts. So that's a misconception. Some people will teach that, that all believers will receive the same gifts. The truth is not all believers will receive all of the same gifts, nor will anyone receive all of the gifts. Paul asks rhetorically in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 29, are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers, do all work miracles, do all have gifts of healing, do all speak in tongues, do all interpret? The implied answer is he's talking about the parts of the body is no. The parts of the body are different. God did not gift us all the same or gift us completely without the need for each other. That would defeat, again, God's method and purpose in giving us the gifts. Romans chapter 12, verse 4, for each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function. So in Christ, we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts. We don't all have the same gifts. Not everybody will receive the same gifts. So ministries that will teach you that you will speak in tongues if you have the Holy Spirit, we don't all have that gift. Some of you will and some of you won't. Ministries that teach that every single one of you is going to prophesy, they're in error. Some of you will. Some of you won't. Don't rule out what God may do through you at one point in your life or at another point in your life. And don't rule out that God can give you a gift at a certain time in your life that you didn't have at another time in your life. But don't expect that he's going to do everything or should do everything through you all the time. Now, again, I want to just clarify, that doesn't mean in my mind that these ministries or churches or denominations that teach these things are knowingly doing harm or they have ill intent. And it's most innocent. I think we're just needing to define different terms for the same practices. 
But at its worst, we're stirring up a lot of confusion without the discernment to filter what is of God and what is human behavior and conditioning. Not everybody's going to have the same gifts. Let's not make everybody parrot each other's behavior because not all of it's going to be of God. Sixth misconception, the spirit always intends at all times to improve our circumstances, personal health, and our progress toward personal goals. That would be wonderful, wouldn't it? (laughs) That'd be wonderful for us circumstantially, terrible for us in our spiritual growth, in our spiritual maturity. But wouldn't we just wish that the Spirit at all times just wanted to give us perfect health, wanted to answer every single one of our requests for our progress toward our personal goals and just improve our circumstances. The truth is, the Spirit will intervene in all circumstances, good and bad, to bring about greater union with Christ and spiritual maturity. There are false teachers who will press, absolutely press people into thinking that if they just pray harder, that if they just have more faith, every infirmity is going to be healed. Everything they ask for is going to come to pass. They're going to find circumstantial victory everywhere, and they're going to be drugged level happy all the time. That's Santa Claus? Uh, I want to go into the tradition of Santa Claus. He was actually a Christian. He was a nice guy. Gets a bad rap. We can talk about that later, Abe. I'd love to have that discussion. Guys, this is an over-realization of the kingdom of heaven. We are not in heaven, though we do and should expect to experience a foretaste of heaven, glimpses, impressions of what is to come. In this world, Jesus said, this is a promise, we're going to have trouble. But the power of the Spirit is that in trouble, God will work even as he doesn't always get us out of it. That is trouble. Think that there were times that supernatural, miraculous things happen. The apostles are in prison and then an earthquake hits and they're released and then they lead someone to the Lord. Amazing. And then think that also in the New Testament is evidence that Paul is in chains and he longs to be out of chains and he's in chains for years. So God is in both things. These are spirit-filled leaders of the church. Think of the center of our salvation and faith. Christ died on a cross. That was not good, circumstantially. And it was actually the crowd that was saying, well, if you're God, and if God cares about you, you won't have to go through this, and you can come down from the cross. Thank God Jesus didn't, because that was the most significant act, which made the way for us to receive God's spirit. In Acts chapter 7, think of Stephen being stoned to death. He was filled with the Spirit, specifically it says. To do what? To have circumstantial victory. The people are going to come to stone him, and he zaps them all and they die. Or he just acquires this like impenetrable armor so that when they stone him, he doesn't actually die. No, he was filled with the Spirit, united with Christ to the extent that he saw Jesus standing to receive him in heaven. And he proclaimed forgiveness over those who were killing him, just as Jesus did at the cross. And he was martyred. In 2 Corinthians chapters 11 and 12, it is the false teachers, Paul's opponents, who constantly boasted in the benefits and abilities and victory that they had. They were known as the super apostles. We had Paul and all the other apostles, and then we had these guys who had it all the time going good for them. Whereas Paul says God allowed him to experience weakness because God's power, Jesus said to Paul, is made perfect in weakness. 
So always remember, it was Satan who promised Jesus that he would never have to go through anything painful. When he was in the wilderness temptation, he said, you can turn these stones to bread. He said, I can give you all the kingdoms of the earth. You don't have to go through any trouble. And that was the same taunt that was happening at the cross. So guys, yes, the spirit as it is at work in our healing But the Spirit is also at work to console us in sickness when there is no healing. Romans chapter 8, verse 26. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. Doesn't just get us out of our weakness. He helps us in our weakness. We don't know what we ought to pray for sometimes, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. That's like Jesus said. He would give us another advocate to be our comforter. Not our escape all the time, but our comforter in the midst of our pain. The Spirit is at work to give us like words when we testify to empower us, yes. But he's also with us when people don't receive those words and those testimonies and they come against us. And in the case of the early believers, to enable them to have the courage to face what would be certain death. Those who don't understand the totality of the Spirit's work will have no theology, no understanding of the place of suffering or of hardship. They will always and only pray to get out of hardship, never knowing God might reveal the most to them when they are in the midst of that hardship. As Paul said in Philippians chapter 4, verse 13 to 14, I know how to live humbly and I know how to abound. I am accustomed to any and every situation, to being filled and being hungry, to having plenty and having need. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. You lift that last verse, and you can say, God's going to enable me to have victory in every situation. Everything is going to go my way. But that's not what Paul's saying. It wasn't the power to get him out of all things negative, but to endure through all things negative and positive. So these are some misconceptions, some cultural misconceptions involving the gifts and the spirit that we've covered. It is 738. I want to give you guys just a few minutes if you'd like. I know you're all riveted right now as we get through these misconceptions, as we talk about our culture of spirituality and the gifts. But if you'd like to take a second, get some fresh air. I'm a little sweaty right now in this humid warehouse. If you want to get some water and hydrate, if you'd like to go to the bathroom, if you'd like to use this as your opportunity to sneak out and then come back and listen to the rest of it online. There is no judgment here. God bless you. We'll get back, having corrected some of these cultural misconceptions, and move on to some, defining some terms and specific gifts as we unpack the practical layer of our practices. All right, go forth. We're going to come back together in about three or four minutes.